Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs came away from the second game of the MLS's back tournament with one point after a 1-1 draw with D.C. United. Adam Buxa broke open the scoring early in the second half with his second goal in the Revs' jersey to give the good guys a lead, but a lapse of judgment from Tony De La Maya proved costly, resulting in the lone goal from D.C. United and ultimately a 1-1 draw. The Revs now go into the third game of the group stage with four points before, with four points uh, bef- and are now behind Toronto FC on goal differential in the group. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today is Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? Pretty good. I mean, the, the Revolution are in a good position. It was a you know interesting match to watch, uh, despite the fact that the Revolution should have come away with with three points and left with just one. Absolutely. And also joining us today is Seth McComer from the Bent Musket. Seth, how's how are you today? Good. Happy to be here. Uh, I feel like it's pretty rare for me to be on the podcast with Sean and you. So uh, happy to have all three of us here. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to reunite the A-team. No, no one tell Jake, but I think this is our uh, A-grouping right here. Well, he doesn't listen. Wow. <laughs> well, no, nobody, nobody from Connecticut, so we're already winning. Yeah, there we go. Um, but let's get into some key takeaways. Seth, I'll, I'll start with you. What's your key takeaway from yesterday's draw? Yeah, I think my t- key takeaway is that um, DC came out and pressured the revs, and that caused a lot of problems with their passing. And uh, the first game of the tournament, a lot of people were complimenting the Revs, and rightfully so, for how well they were connecting passes and uh, making things work, especially along that back line. Uh, but really, when you go back and watch the game, they were not pressuring the ball at all. Like, Montreal was getting back into a deep shell, and that allowed the Revs to, to move the ball very quickly, to find their opportunities. Um, it was amazing also to think about how often Carlos Hill was able to turn around and have space against Montreal. And after the game, Thierry Henry uh, really criticized his team, saying that they did not play well, they didn't have energy. Um, you know, a week later, we have DC United as the opponent for the Revolution, and they were willing to to, to press the ball. Uh, a couple numbers that I came out of uh, and show that this is a definitely a trend. Um, Delamea passed the ball to Turner seven times last night, um, and he did not pass the ball at all to Turner when playing against Montreal. So uh, we saw that a lot, even in the early going. That Delamea, when he wasn't sure where to go, he would go back to Turner long ball, and that would create a lot of long ball situations that the Revolution weren't necessarily uh, handling well. Another number that I, I pulled out from uh, Stat Zone that I thought was interesting is that uh, against Montreal, the Revs made 31 long ball attempts and 22 were completed. Against D.C., that number was 45, and they completed 23. So you can see that when, once you start pressuring the Revs, um, they, were give, they were giving away the ball more often. They were going longer more often. It was really disrupting the the game that we saw. So I think there's a lot that we can analyze in this game and try to understand where the tr- true weaknesses and strengths of the Revs are right now and how they can continue to build on that as we hopefully head towards a regular season. 
Yeah, I think you make a great point, Seth. And it was a completely different game um, from what we saw against Montreal as far as the, the tactics of the opponent. Um, like you said, with Montreal, I think you know the Revs had a lot of freedom because Montreal really didn't press them much at all and kind of let the game come to them. Um, and that really kind of played into the Revs and, and what they were trying to do. And in this game, DC United was a, a lot more aggressive at pressing. And I still don't think DC United is, is that great of a pressing team, or at least from what they saw in this game, was that great of a pressing team. They just did it a lot more um, than Montreal. But but you're right. The, this led to a lot more back passes to Turner. I think Turner had close to two times as many pass attempts as he had in the prior game. And uh, I think he only didn't connect on two of them against Montreal. And he was... I think there were twelve in this game that he that he you know didn't connect on, and a lot a lot of those were long balls. Um, so yeah, that pressure certainly caused problems for the Revolution, um, and, and just in general too. Uh, we talked a lot about how in the prior game, uh, Brandon By and to a lesser extent, you know, Bootner were able to get forward a lot um, because of you know the way Montreal played and, and how Montreal really wasn't pressing. Um, and in this game, they had to do a lot more defending. Uh, and if you kind of look at their passing charts, and in particular their their forward passing charts, uh, Bootner only connected on seven of nineteen forward pass attempts, and Brandon By only connected on fourteen of twenty nine forward pass attempts. So those two guys that were you know really effective passing the ball um, in the game against Montreal had to do a lot more defending in this game and didn't have as much success going forward. And I think that was kind of a product of, of again DC United's tactics. Um, so, you know, I thought the two of those guys did a decent job defending when they were forced into it in this game. Uh, but the Revs strategy certainly had to evolve in this one because of what DC United did to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, we talked about a little bit last week about how Terry Henry, his tactics seemed to be lacking a little bit. And it seemed like Ben Olsen and DC United was just a lot more prepared to face the Revs uh, than Montreal. Um, it, it was a completely different game as you as you guys are mentioning and um the revs certainly were not as in control as they were in the montreal game and, and had a little bit more um resistance uh sean let's move over to your key takeaway uh what, what did you take away from this match yeah my takeaway is that the revolution defense we still don't know um what the revs best defense is out there i think this game was kind of a proving point for that um and i don't think we've gotten into the injuries yet but uh, you know seth asked in the, in the press conference after the game why bruce arena subbed michael mancian at halftime and he said it was i think he said it was muscle tightness um and this was again the reason why he was subbed out in the game a week ago uh in the 66th minute so you know it's it's great to see michael mancian coming back onto the field and, and playing pretty well um, i don't think he's really done too much wrong in these two games again i don't think he's been tested um, in either of these two games as, as much as he might be against, say, a Toronto FC. Um, but, you know, to have a center back that needs to be subbed in both games is not a good thing for the Revolution. You know, you talk about positions that, uh, about the five sub rule and how it's nice to, to make a lot of changes. One position you don't want to make subs in is center back because the, the chemistry there and the cohesion there is so important. And those guys kind of, as a, as a game goes on, grow together and adapt together into the, the style of the game. Um, so to make a sub there can be really detrimental to a team. I think actually when we had Henry Kessler on a, a while back and we mentioned that five-sub rule to him, he, he talked about how it probably wouldn't impact him very much because center backs is a, is a position that doesn't get subbed. And, and here he is two games into the tournament and he's been subbed in both times. Um, but there's a lot of question marks now for the Revolution at center back. I think people were excited that the Revs got a shutout in the first game. And again, I don't think De La May and Mancien had much of a step wrong. Although again, I don't think they had much pressure on them. Um, and this game they had more pressure on them. 
you know, Mancien picks up another injury. Uh, De La Mea has that terrible turnover that leads to Iguain's equalizing goal. Um, and I think you, you leave this game with more questions than answers about who the Revolution's best center backs are. Um, and I would not be the least bit surprised if we go into the final game of the season, uh, or the final game of the group play, I should say, and, and we see you know, De La Mea out of the lineup, Mancien out of the lineup, and, and Kessler and Farrell, who were kind of the starters at the beginning of the year, right back into it. Um, you know, it's, it certainly seems like Bruce Arena has been heavily reliant on veterans in this tournament so far. And, you know, to a certain extent, I get that. You know, these are guys that his, his young players haven't had a chance to, to train and fully get ready for this in the, the way I'm sure he'd like to to get them prepared. So he's relied on kind of the veterans that you'd expect to, can step in more quickly and, you know, have that experience. Um, but I, I don't know if that's the, the right long-term answer for the revolution. In particular, you know, when you see the, the substitutions as well, that Bruce Arena has been hesitant to give his, his young guys playing time uh, in these first two games. So, uh, you know, my takeaway, though, is that the, the defense, there's still a lot more questions than answers, and I, I don't think that Bruce Arena has found his best two center backs yet. I have a theory that, because uh, we know Bruce Arena likes the five-sub rule, I think he likes the five-sub rule because he can start Mancien knowing that he's going to come out <laughs> with an injury at some point, uh, and he won't have to necessarily burn one of his, his three priority subs, especially if he pulls him at halftime, right? Um, no, but I'm curious, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and, I, and I think that part of it is that there's value in, in partnerships. I imagine that in practice, Kessler and Andrew Farrell are probably partnering quite a bit, and their opponent in practice is probably um, Delamea and Mancien. So with Farrell not available in that first game, maybe that's the, the reasoning why we saw uh, Delamea and Mancien, because there's already that familiarity between those two. So you can naturally plug them in, and hopefully they have some chemistry. And probably the same thing with the, the midfield pairing of uh, Caldwell and um, uh, Rowe, because they, they're probably very likely playing against Sahibo and Fagundes. Um, and then, like you said, you know, they win 1-0 in the opener. It's kind of hard to say we're going to switch everything around um, because we already got this victory. But I put this out because um, I thought there were going to be changes in the starting lineup after I said that, and I said I was a little bit surprised there weren't changes um, because I don't think this is necessarily the Revolution's best lineup that they put out last night. Would it be a little unfair to change it up because of the success after game one? Yeah, maybe. But in retrospect now, we might be looking back and saying that there probably should have been some changes uh, to the starting lineup. Yeah, and one thing, too, that, that I, I thought was really interesting, last week Bruce Arena was um, asked about the center back pairing and, and why he went with Mancien and Tony De La Mea. And he mentioned Andrew Farrell uh, ha had a bit of an injury, which I assume is the reason he was held out yesterday. Um, and, and he said, yeah, so Farrell was unavailable. And it really came down to Henry Kessler versus Tony De La Mea, which I thought was pretty interesting that those were the two people he was debating. I would have assumed it would have been De La Maya and Kessler, but instead in game one, he was debating between starting Henry Kessler and Tony De La Maya, And he said, and it was really kind of neck and neck. So I, I do think that he was kind of going with the veteran pairing of Tony De La Maya and Michael Mancian. I think he likes them as a combo. Um, I wonder if Andrew Farrell comes back healthy next week. We were told he should be ready to go. I don't even think he was listed on the injury report. All indications were that he should be prepared for this game yesterday, but still no appearance from Andrew Farrell um, in that game. So uh, I wonder if we see a center back switch to Andrew Farrell and Henry Kessler, and they like that pairing a little bit more um, than, than Mancien and Tony De La Mea, because you have to assume that Michael Mancien, I mean, I, I don't want to say he's injury prone, but this is the second straight game where he has cramped up, uh, that he has not made it 90 minutes. And, you know, 
Seth has said, thank God for the five subs, or else the, the Rebs would be in a, a bit of a, you know, they'd be behind the eight ball in in terms of lineup management. But, um, I mean, I, I don't know if you run Ancien out there again. He hasn't done anything to be benched, but he doesn't seem 90 minutes fit right now. Um, and then you add in the short turnarounds for a game on Tuesday. Um, I, I imagine they're going to go to a fully rested Andrew Farrell and I imagine they're going to go to Henry Kessler, who has been pretty solid in the time that we've seen him. So um, the one thing I will say is in regards to Tony De La Maya, obviously we all saw the error that led to the goal. Obviously it was a huge, huge error, um, big lapse in judgment. But overall, I thought outside of that one mistake, I didn't think he had that poor of a game. Um, it's just those are the moments that are going to completely define you as a defender. And um, yeah, I, I expect to see two different center backs next. Greg, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that quote from Bruce Arena. We basically imply that you know the decision was between De La Maya and Henry Kessler, and not really Mancien. Um, and, and you also mentioned last week about you know how you know, maybe we're being harsh on Mancien because he's had so many injuries with the Revolution; he's never fully been healthy. But you know, you kind of get to the point now where you look at Michael Mancien. He's 32 years old. Uh, he's played in some of the most bruising leagues in the world. You know, between the Premier League with Chelsea, a few games, uh, the Championship in England, which you know again is a very physical league, the Bundesliga, a, a very physical league. So you know, he's a guy that's got a, a lot of miles on his legs and a lot of very difficult, very physical leagues. And I, I don't think it's you know unfair to say that perhaps at 32 years old, he has taken so much of a beating that you know he has become injury prone. And especially when you're playing in the Florida heat, uh, he keeps having the, this muscle tightness. So um, you know, maybe Michael Mancian is a better defender than I give him credit for, even at this stage in his career. Uh, but at some point, it's too much of a risk to keep putting a center back out there, even with the five sub rule. Um, you know, if you if you're not convinced he's going to make it 90 minutes, so uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to see what what moves Bruce Arena makes. But especially on short rest, I think that Michael Mancian is going to go to the bench. And then you you mentioned Tony Dalemea and kind of the, the the giveaway in this game. And uh, you know, I agree. Otherwise, he's played you know pretty well. Um, in these first two games, but kind of the, the knock on Tony De La Maya, and I've always you know thought he's a good defender, um, is that you know he's a defender that will have one, two, or three boneheaded plays a month if you're starting him every game, um, and they're boneheaded plays to the level of you know a boneheaded play that you'd expect a, a veteran center back to maybe have once or twice a year, and when you're playing that role and you play you know. 89 great minutes, but, you know, one minute where you make that play that costs your team a goal. Um, if, if that's happening, you know, two or three times a month, uh, you know, and we've seen in, in the past him getting boneheaded red cards or, or things like that that have really cost the team, you know, that's just too much from a center back. It kind of goes back to the same thoughts that I've had about Kellen Rowe in these first two games where, yeah, he's doing a lot of good things, but, you know, one or two big mistakes can cost your team a game when you're playing in that position. And, and for De La Maya, if he's going to be an everyday starter, I think it's too much. Well, you were ready to throw that Mancien line right back at me, aren't you? <laughs> you, you were uh, you were ready to uh, completely throw the um, you were too mean to Michael Mancien uh, discussion uh, right right back in my face. <laughs> I uh, should have been prepared for this one, but I I will say I, I want to be very clear though. I don't want to call him injury prone. I just don't think he's fit. I mean, do you, I, th- I think that's a lot more fair to say because I, I think some people you know that have had injuries in the past, you can be one hundred percent recovered from injury, and and I think people. Um, kind of unfairly stereotype people as, you know, this person's not reliable because he's been hurt, you know, a few other years. Like, and so I think in some cases it's a bit of a bad narrative, but boy, he sure fits, you know, he, he sure does have a lot of things that act up. And uh, I, I'm, I don't know if I want to label him as injury prone or, you know, made a glass or any of the other things that people are saying about him, but um, he, he doesn't seem like he can go out and go 90 minutes, at least in the Orlando heat. And if he can't, you have, 
three other center backs that can do a decent job. Um, uh, you know, Tony De La Maya mistakes notwithstanding, as you just said, Sean. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know why they keep running him out there. So we'll see. I, I don't think he gets a third chance to go 90 minutes, um, but we'll we'll find out. So I want to go to my uh, takeaway though, which is that it's not time to panic just yet for the Revs. I see a lot of people upset. I think a lot of people are putting a lot of pressure into this Toronto game. I think a lot of people are stressed about this game. And even in the worst case scenario with the revolution, they should still be advancing. Um, If you look at the standings, um, you know, obviously you automatically move on. If you're one or two in your group, four of the six, three seeds move on in group a inner Miami and New York city FC both have zero points and they play each other. So at most they're going to have three points. The revs have four. So they automatically are above one of those bottom teams. If you look at group E New York red bulls and FC Cincinnati are playing Um, FC Cincinnati probably is going to lose that game because they are terrible. So (laughs) the revs are going to be above them in the standings. Even if they don't, if FC Cincinnati wins, they're above New York red bulls. If red bulls and Cincinnati tie and they end up with four points, even if the revs lose, they would have to fall below FC Cincinnati in goal differential, and FC Cincinnati has negative three goal differential right now. So the Revs would have to lose by four goals, basically, to just get in the conversation of not making it past the group stage. So I think a lot of people suddenly have this you know, impression that TFC is this critical, critical game. Really, this is just for jockeying for position. Um, it's going to be a very, very tough game. I don't have a whole lot of expectations that they will beat Toronto FC. I think if you come out of a draw, I think that's a, a I, I'd be pleased with that. Um, Toronto FC outside of re- a really horrible 30 minutes against DC United have looked pretty good. Um, so, and, and their offense is certainly going to test the revolution defense a lot more than DC United uh, and Montreal impact have. So uh, I, I, I'm not preparing for the worst, but um, if the revs lose two nothing, it isn't the end of the world. And I, I just want to tell everyone to take a deep breath step away from the panic button it's going to be okay yeah i think that uh DC, i think that toronto is going to be an interesting opponent because their offense looks very very good um if you watched both of the games they are dynamic they're combining well they're going to cause a lot of headaches uh for the revolution unless they really figure things out uh, along that back line <clears throat> defensively however the toronto fc hasn't been that good uh, and they're also another team that has to uh, change their defenders at the wrong times, um, changing up center backs, creating problems. But even when they're keeping their their main guys in there, Mavinga and um, Gonzalez, they don't necessarily look that good. So I think that the Revolution are going to have to bring the game to them and really try to uh, score early. That said, the Revolution aren't very good when they score first. Uh, they are, they've only uh, won once this year when they score first, in fact. So uh, I think that that's a problem that you're looking at with this Revolution team that – Yes, it's about the tournament, but hopefully there's also this regular season. And if they're going to end up you know, going up the, the Eastern Conference, they have to win games like this. And you can also look at this and say this is a difficult game to judge because of the Orlando heat, because of the conditions. Uh, but the Revs got over a week of rest. And they were healthy, like you mentioned. There was only one name on the injury report, and that's Casado. And we know that's a guy that's not going to be playing this season. So this is a really a game that you know you score first against an Eastern Conference foe. You have to do better. Um, and maybe that doesn't affect you that much in the tournament, but these type of performances will certainly affect you when it comes to the regular season. And it's definitely a, a big loss overall. 
Yeah, Seth, you bring up a, a great point because I, I don't think anyone really is thinking about the the regular season standings right now. And I guess we we don't know that the season's going to resume after this. Bruce Arena thinks it's going to, and you know we hope that it's going to, uh, if it, you know if it can be done safely. But um, if you if you switch over from the the group stage standings to the actual MLS standings, uh, the Revolution are below the red line right now, um, and. Yeah, it's only four games, but again, we don't know how many games are going to be in the regular season if there is one. So, yeah, this this Toronto FC game does matter as far as Revolution actually making the playoffs if there is a regular season that continues and if there is a playoffs that continues because right now uh, the Revs are in eighth place uh, just below that red line. DC United is actually the team that's above them. Uh, so, you know, that adds a little bit extra importance to the, the game that took place on Friday. You know, a win there would have put the Revolution in a much better position as far as playoff positioning uh, for the regular season if, if that does actually continue. Okay, well, I will amend my answer to I'm not panicked in the context of the MLS's, to- <laughs> MLS's back tournament group stage. Uh, I'm, I'm having a bit of a rough day here so far. I'm getting, getting from all sides. I will also add another caveat, which is I am not totally worried given Carlos Hill is healthy. Um, he limped off yesterday uh, in the 62nd minute, subbed off for Diego Fagundes, um, obviously an early night. And he said earlier in the week at his press conference that he's still getting into the rhythm of things, but his heel is still, not, or his foot, I should say, is still not 100% healthy. Um, Sean, on a scale of one to 10, where is your panic meter with Carlos Hill? Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested to see what comes out you know, today or tomorrow or whenever they give us more of an update because... Um, it's, I think it's very worrying that they subbed him out in the 66th minute. And, you know, I assumed it was just a, a tactical thing, but he was limping. And they said after the game that, it, you know, it's the same injury that he had in preseason. And when you, you know, have something like that that flares up again, you know, it, it could be nothing. It could be just like a minor thing that goes away. But, you know, more often than not, it seems to be more of a, a serious issue that could keep him out for a while. So, um, and particularly when you see how the revolution played after he was subbed out compared to how they played with him on the field. Um, and again, you know, as my key takeaway in the, last week about how important Carlos Hill is to the revolution. Uh, if, if he's out for any extended period of time, I think the revolution are in, in serious trouble. And the conversation goes from them, you know, potentially being a, a dark horse contender in this, in this tournament to, you know, is it a success that they just made it out of the group stage? Yeah. And last year he played all but eight minutes in 2019. That's pretty crazy to think about. Like he was a, a, a guy that you could rely upon no matter what he's a guy who really probably didn't want to come off the field because he's such a warrior such a battler so the fact that he missed the first two games of the season that's something and i remember talking to you greg about how worried should we be that he's missing those games and i said that's not that big of a deal in my mind yes the revs aren't going to look as good yes they might drop points but as long as he gets healthy he's such a game changer everything's going to be good so you just want him to be at full health so he can be playing his best soccer he comes back in the mls's back tournament Things look good. You know, 12 uh, big chances created. Uh, He plays 90 minutes. All seems like it's good. And then a week later, he comes off in the 62nd minute. That's pretty concerning, you know. And the fact that he earlier in the week said that he doesn't feel 100%. The fact that after the game, uh, Bruce Arena says it's the same exact injury and that he's going to be checked out by a doctor on Saturday, that's concerning. It could be nothing. It could definitely be precautionary but i i think that's kind of interesting that he he did say arena kind of said that like um it was the same injury and that we are just going to like continue to evaluate it, as opposed to saying that it was something minor like with man cn saying that it was muscle tightness that seemed like a minor thing to me you know it, it, he makes it to halftime he's like ah i'm cramping up maybe i didn't uh, uh the, the weather's really getting to me okay fine we'll take you off because we have other options 
for a uh, heel to come out, a guy who really never comes out, and for it to be the same injury, I think is a little bit concerning. Yeah, and, and I think Greg asked to put it on a one to ten scale, and I ignored that. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put it at a seven right now, and and say that you know this could be a big deal for the Revolution. Seth, same thing. Give me a number here, Seth. Where, where's your panic meter at? Yeah, I'll give it a seven too, um, because you still don't know where it's at. But I think that Sean is spot on because the everything goes to Carlos Heel right now. Uh, it, it is really absurd how important he is to the team. And I, I went back and watched the second half before this podcast. And when he comes off the field, things became much more direct. Uh, it didn't seem like uh, Rowe and Caldwell were getting on the ball and trying to provide that same type of linking between the, the defense and the offense. Uh, Diego, who came in for him, did the same thing. He wasn't really providing the, the influence you'd want him to have. And uh, we'll probably talk about it. We can mention it right now. It was pretty um, very noticeable how often you could hear Kellen Rowe's name being uh, called from the sidelines. Like, come on, Kellen, get into the game, Kellen. Because there was a lot of times when uh, the defense is passing the ball on their back line and Rowe, who you kind of hope would be the person, wasn't getting on the ball. You know, like you'd hope that he gets his body on the half turn, receives the ball, and then tries to find someone. But instead of that happening, a lot of times it was going a little bit more direct and trying to find uh, Busco, who can do that type of thing, but they weren't finding a lot of success with those long balls. So uh, with Carlos Heel out of the game, you're going to have to find somebody else that can link between the defense and the offense. You're going to have to do that anyway, in my opinion. I think the, the team is much too reliant on Carlos Heel, but because he's so crafty, because he's so good, you're able to get away with that in games. Uh, if he's not on the field, you definitely have to find a plan B. So uh, I'll give it a seven, like Sean said, because we don't know the extent of the injury. Um, who knows? Maybe like a couple days of rest, he's good to go and everything's fine. Uh, but if, if we find out that he's on the injury report, I would definitely increase that to a higher number. Yeah, and overall, Carlos Heel, just to run through his numbers real quick, 33 for 40 passing, included, that's 83%, uh, 16 for 23 in the attacking third. He had three chances created in 62 minutes. So a um, bit, bit of a quote-unquote quiet night for, for Carlos Heel. Um, certainly less of an effect than he did against DC, but still made a bit of an impact and still not at 100%. Um, and I just want to kind of move over to a couple of brief listener notes uh, and listener questions uh, because we're kind of hitting on this right now. So uh, MJ said it's very concerning how the attack grinds to a halt once Heal is out of the game, eerily similar to the first two games of the year. Fugundes hasn't shown any ability to distribute the past two seasons. We are in trouble if Heal, if Heal's foot injury is a chronic issue. Um, so he, he seems to agree with your sentiments. Uh, and then we also got a question from Revolution Report who said, are the Revs too dependent on Carly's heel? And Seth, I believe you said in your answer, the Revs are too dependent on Carly's heel. So you've already kind of answered that one. But Sean, I, I, I assume you're kind of in the same boat here that um, if Carly's heel isn't on the field, it's a really, really big issue for the Revs. Yeah. And, and Seth made the excellent point about how Carlos Hill only didn't play eight minutes last year. Um, and, you know, when somebody brings up Diego Fagundes and him not kind of filling in that Carlos Hill role in the past two years, it's because, you know, for that very reason, he hasn't had to. You know, Carlos Hill has been on the field other than the, really the first two games of the season and, and the uh, the end of the last game. So um, Diego Fagundes has at times shown he's capable of, you know, doing some of that distributing and, and doing some of that play, um, particularly early on in, in Brad Friedel's tenure. Um, but he hasn't really been asked to do that much since. Um, and I don't know that he's capable of stepping up and uh, certainly he's not Carly's heel, um, but I don't know that he's capable of stepping up and being a poor man's Carly's heel or if that's you know not really his style anymore. So 
Um, I, I completely agree with Seth that somebody has to step up. Um, but, you know, th- and the point that Seth makes, too, is that the Revs are really reliant on Carly's heel. But Carly's heel is such a good player that the Revs can afford to be really reliant on him when he's healthy because, you know, for another team to shut him down, they have to give him a lot of attention. And, you know, you can give Carly's heel a lot of attention and shut him down. And, and DC did to, to some extent in this game. You mentioned he only had only three chances created compared to, uh, you know, 12 against... Uh, Montreal, but you know, even even with that stat, I think at least two of those chances were off corner kicks. So yeah, it really was kind of a quiet game for Carly's heel. Um, but because of that, I think there was more space for a guy like Gustavo Bo and, and Adam Buxa than there would be if Carly's heel wasn't on the field. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think both of those comments are you know absolutely accurate, and um, you know, it's going to be really tough for the Revolution if, if Carly's heel is out for any period. Let's move uh, quickly to the lineups. I know we've kind of touched on the lineups and the subs uh, briefly here. And I also know that, um, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit at length last week. We don't need to go into uh, everything again. But were you guys, I, I think you both have said you were surprised about the lineups. Were you also surprised that it took a little bit of time to uh, get some subs kind of late in the game? Subs also to run through. Obviously, Mancian came off at halftime. Heel came off in the 62nd minute. Both of those, Bruce seemed to be forced to pull them off the field. But uh, after that, Teal came on for Scott Caldwell in the 77th minute, and then Renex and Buchanan came in in the 90th minute. Um, are you guys kind of frustrated with the uh, substitution patterns? I, I was. Um, I think that this tournament, in my mind, was going to be an opportunity to showcase some young players. And I think other teams have done that. Um, and some of those guys are starter at other teams, like Brennan Aronson is really good for uh, the Philadelphia Union. Uh, A.O. Akinoli was really good filling in for um, – Josie Altidore for Toronto FC. Uh, and I don't think necessarily some of these younger guys for the Revs should be starting, but I was expecting some of those guys to come off the bench. Uh, for me, Tayon Buchanan and um, Dewan Jones being on the left and the right wing would cause absolute nightmares for opponents. Like, they're just so quick and so crafty. And to put those guys as wide midfielders for 15 minutes, I think would create a lot of problems for the opposition. So I wish I could see a little bit more of them. I thought it was interesting midweek where I was talking to, to Bruce. Uh, the media was talking to Bruce. It wasn't a one-on-one with Bruce, okay? Even though him and I are tight, we weren't talking to Bruce. <laughs> uh, but when the media – I asked him about the lineup, and he talked about how he expects to see some other players uh, later on. And one of the names he dropped was Rivera, who was very, very good during the preseason, and we haven't seen him at all. So I think there's opportunities, I would hope, to get some of those guys in. And I know that Bruce in the past has really relied on his experienced players – uh, Sean made a really good point about this, that, um, you know, Bruce Arena finds his guys and puts them in there and says, you know, I'm going to play you for the duration. And maybe there is a little bit of concern about taking someone off like Christian Pena or Gustavo Bo, who could create something in a, in a minute's notice. I mean, those guys are so creative that you could be quiet for 80 minutes and all of a sudden have that moment of brilliance. Um, and we've seen that time and time again. If you take those guys off the field, obviously they can't have those moments of brilliance. But I do think that given the conditions, given the heat, given the 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 pace of the game, um, that putting someone out there that's just going to be out there and be absolute energy uh, would bring a lot of value to the team. Uh, and maybe if, you know, Justin Renix or if Tejon Buchanan finished one of those chances in the first two games of the season, maybe Arena has a little bit more faith in those younger guys to go out there and create havoc. Um, but I, I do I do think that, especially for a guy who – who likes the five sub rule. I think that they, he should have been looking to his bench a little bit earlier because to come in basically at stoppage time, that's, there's not much opportunity to make a difference. Now you're almost asking those guys to go out there and use their energy to make sure that DC doesn't score another goal. 
Yeah, I, I com- agree completely with everything you just said. And just to, just to kind of further emphasize the point you made, too, about, you know, taking off Pania and Gustavo Bo. you know, Arena said that after the game in the press conference, that kind of his thought process on why he waited so long was that he didn't want to take off, you know, to, to make one of those subs, he was going to have to take off either Adam Buxa, Gustavo Bo, or Christian Pania um, at that point. And he kind of was hesitant to do that. And he would have been happy to finish the game with those guys on the field. And, you know, Everything you just said, I completely agree with that. You know, Christian Penny is a guy that can kind of create a goal at a moment's notice. Uh, Gustavo Bo, obviously a guy that can do that. We've seen it time and time again. Um, but, you know, in saying that, this is a, a situation where they're playing down in Orlando, where it is very hot, where you could see how much these guys were sweating, where guys looked like they were tired, where you were playing a DC United game that was on really short rest and that, you know, had had. Played for ten, played with ten men for the majority of their last game. So there's no question this DC United team was not 100. percent And you know the Revs actually ceded a lot of possession to DC in the second half. They controlled the possession in the first half. In the second half, DC had more possession. Um, and you know again, this was an opportunity for the Revolution to really tire them out and really take advantage of DC's tired legs. And instead, it was kind of DC that looked the fresher team at points in the second half. Um, to me, that was a sign the Revolution should have made subs sooner. Uh, even Wilfred Zahibo as a substitution when the Revolution were leading earlier in this game would have made sense to me. And then late in the game when the Revolution, when the score was knotted up, I don't understand why they waited till the 91st minute to bring on Buchanan and Renix. I also don't know why they necessarily went with Renix over Dewan Jones. Maybe, I, I, maybe I've been playing too much FIFA, but <laughs> the strategy of bringing on really fast wingers late in the game against a tired defense seems to make a lot of sense to me. And it just, they waited too late to do that in this game. It's very hard to have an impact coming off the bench with four minutes to go. Um, and, you know, Buchanan and Renix really didn't have an impact because there wasn't that time. So uh, I, I don't know why Bruce Arena is so hesitant to make these subs. He was in the first game as well. I think that, you know, there was the fourth sub to, to Mancien, um, in the first game as well, and then the next sub didn't come until you know very late in the game. Um, so yeah, I think in this situation where guys have not had uh, you know months to build up their fitness and to become ninety minutes fit when you're playing in extreme heat in Orlando, and especially when you're playing against a team that clearly has tired legs, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me to wait so late to bring on those guys that can kind of be game changers. And you know, you know, I like the Teal Bunbury for Scott Caldwell sub, but Bunbury is not that fast of a player anymore at this point either. Um, he's, he doesn't have the same wheels he used to have. He used to be that guy that could kind of stretch a defense and, and you know, cause all those problems on tired legs. I don't think he's really that player anymore. Yeah, and I just want to mention this quote really fast. Um, Bruce Arena said last night, uh, we would have had to take off Pena or Bo uh, or Buxa, so that's the reason we held out. D.C. United scored their goal around the 76th minute or so. I'm not exactly sure, but we would have been happy to play that game out with the group that was on the field. Uh, so, yeah, it, it seems like they were trying to hold out uh, in case, um, you know, I, I, I think they seemed fine running that that group out there uh, and keeping them out um, uh, until the end of the game. So um, uh, I'm, I'm a bit surprised, too. They seemed a lot much more tired. And, and Sean, to your point, I'm surprised they don't bring Dewan Jones out. If you want fresh legs, he's the fastest guy you have on the field. I mean, he played attack. You know, he, he played winger in college. Um, so I, I'm really surprised that we didn't see him at all. But um, I do want to get your thoughts on Adam Buxa, Gustavo Bo, and Christian Pineda. The attack, they had a lot of chances, couldn't really finish um, all of them, obviously. Only Adam Buxa uh, was the one that was able to find the back of the net. So, um, Sean, give me your assessment of those three uh, and their performance yesterday. Yeah, and just going back really quickly on, on Pania, you know, you mentioned last week that Pania was a guy that, you know, you didn't necessarily want to see go 90 minutes. Um, and, I, you know, I, I kind of agreed with that. And that's why it was kind of, 
it was interesting to me to see Bruce Arena kind of lump him into that same category with his DPs, Adam Buxa and Gustavo Bo, when he's talking about substitutions. Because, yes, Pena is a guy that can be a game changer. He's also a guy that can kind of float out of a game for a long period of time. Um, so I'm not sure that he belongs kind of in that same conversation. And he was a guy that I think, you know, like a Dewan Jones should have come in for him. With that said, I thought, you know, Pena had a, a classic Christian Pena game. Um, there were times where he, you know, wasn't that involved. And there are other times where he made some really nice plays. Uh, his deflected shot led to Adam Buchs' goal. Um, he had a breakaway that, you know, a player of his caliber should put away nine times out of 10. And, you know, his shot was decent and the save from Bill Hamid was better, but you know, that was a chance to put the game away and make it two nothing. And he didn't do that. Um, so, you know, again, Christian Pena game, a lot of good moments, you know, a lot of moments of invisibility. Um, and at the key moment, he didn't finish the chance. So, uh, Decent game for him. You know, I think he continues to start, maybe not the next game because of tired legs, but um, he's a guy that I do think, you know, you consider subbing in the 60, 70th minute when you have a guy like Dewan Jones or a guy like Tejon Buchanan on the bench. Um, Adam Buxa, I thought, had a, a really good game. You know, he gets knocked for, you know, not having that many touches sometimes, but he should have had two assists in this game. I think he set up the Pania chance. He set up a Gustavo Bo chance where Gustavo Bo, uh, you know, volleyed well high of the net and what he should have done a lot better with. Um, and, of course, he scored the goal in that deflected shot. Very alert from him. And, he, you know, did overall, he's, he's shown he's very talented in the air. Um, when you have a guy playing that role who, you know, attracts a lot of attention from the defense um, and, and puts himself into a situation to win those chances, you know, yes, his touches may be limited and yes, he may not be the most active guy in the game, but, uh, you know, he could have ended this game with a goal and two assists and, and been man of the match. So I don't think there's too much you can knock uh, Adam Buxa on. Um, and then getting to Gustavo Bo, uh, Gustavo Bo again, is that guy that can, that creates a lot of chances can pop up and, and score out of nothing. Um, but, his shooting boots just don't seem to be there so far in this tournament. It's completely understandable that, you know, you've been off for four months that it takes a little while to get your clinical finishing down. He scored that fantastic goal last week, but probably should have had, you know, two more goals. And in this game, you know, I think he should have finished that layoff from Adam Buchs. I think that was a fantastic chance for him and a player of his quality needs to put that on frame. Um, so yeah, I, I think Gustavo Bo, uh, you know, could kind of go either way on this one because he had some put himself in good positions, created some chances, but the finishing hasn't been good enough from him. And it's understandable given the scenario, but you'd like to see more from Gustavo Bo as far as putting shots in the net. Yeah, I totally agree with you on Pineda. I'm not going to add anything there. Um, with with Buxa, he's such an interesting person to me because uh, it feels like he's still trying to build that chemistry with the team, which totally makes sense. Uh, but he has shown that he's really good at a hold-up forward uh, he's really good when it comes to his technical ability on the ball, some of his turns that he's able to do. Um, but there are times where it just feels like he's not quite linking up yet. And I'm thinking of uh, a play where uh, it was Brandon by right after halftime, Brandon by to Bo. Bo sends in a low cross, and it feels like uh, that's a type of ball that a guy who's a finisher in the box should be able to get to, that Buxa should be able to get to. And against Montreal, there was a similar play that was a shot slash a cross Probably Books is not getting to that one because of the way that um, Bo plays it. It feels like it's out of his, his his reach. But I think that second ball from Bo in this last game was much more uh, approachable, something that he could get to if he was you know, making his stride correctly. There was another play in which the ball was played long where he brings it down and he plays Bo, and he then opens up. Uh, on the right-hand side to hypothetically receive a return pass, like a give-and-go, to then go to goal. Instead, Bo turns, and then he heads over to heel. And I think that you just see that those two are so much more connected, Bo and heel, 
that Buxa is still trying to find his his role within that attack. And there was another um, from the first half. There was a time where uh, Adam Buxa checked in to try to receive the ball, and Heald is like was there, and Buxa was like, "Oh yeah, it's totally should be your ball. I'm gonna back off." So in that moment, it wasn't really clear who should be going for that. Uh, he does back off, which is the right move because Heal is the one that's actually facing the goal. But it just feels like there's still some misconnections between those players where Heal and Bo are just they, – they have that rhythm. Since day one, they've had that connection. They have that chemistry. You still have to figure out how everything works in that attack when you have all those weapons on the field. That said, I thought the second half – particular was really sharp from Buxa. Uh, I think there's a lot of talent there. Uh, like you said, you know, you, you score a goal, kind of a fluky goal, but like if you're a finisher, you have to take any type of opportunity that's put in front of you and put it into the back of the net. And he certainly does that. When um, he had that great hold up play that, that he finds Christian Pania. I mean, that, that's, you'd love to see more of that. You would hope, you know, like that he drops in, then you create, like he pulls all those defenders with him, creates some space in behind. And that's where you want Pania just to run at someone and run space all day towards the goal, towards the goalie, and hopefully put it away in the future. Uh, so lots of encouraging stuff from Buxa, especially in the, the second half. Um, but I still think that there's chemistry to build there, um, which is encouraging more than anything else because he's still, you know, two goals on the season, uh, one with his foot, one with his head. That's pretty promising. But I think there's still more to, to be um, put into play there once they build more chemistry and understand how to play off of each other. Yeah, and, and honestly, that Gustavo Bo chance that Buxa created um, is kind of what I was visualizing, visualizing as this Revolution offense looking like when they signed Adam Buxa. Is that you know the, the, somebody sends in a cross or a, you know long ball to Adam Buxa and he lays it off to a you know on rushing Gustavo Bo who blasted into the back of the net. It just seemed like the perfect kind of setup with these guys' different skill sets, but we haven't seen too much of that yet. And there was that opportunity, and Gustavo Bo kind of blasted it over the net and wasted it. You know, I, I, it was a great point you made about Gustavo Bo's pass in this game because. I, I thought he missed a golden opportunity by not sending in a good pass to by sending in a kind of a poor shot cross, whatever it was. And the game against Montreal that there was no way Adam Buxa was getting to. And this game, I keep going back and forth. Like when I when I first saw that, it seemed like something Adam Buxa could get to. And then I'm trying to convince myself that it was something that he couldn't get to. But now I'm kind of leaning back towards that he probably should have gotten to that. Um, but you know, yeah, you're, I, I completely agree with everything you just said about those two. But. That's just kind of what I was visualizing the chemistry being between these players is that Buxa using his height and his strength to kind of win balls in the air and lay it off for Gustavo Bo for Gustavo Bo to finish. And that was the perfect example and opportunity for that to happen. And Bo just kind of launched it high of the net. Yeah, and on the Buxa play too, he has to get around a defender. And I mean, I I didn't go back and look at it as much as you guys, obviously, but it looks like he can't decide which way to go around the defender. It looks like at first he's going to go kind of towards the far post and then he kind of cuts inside at the last minute and his stride's all thrown off. So I, I think that I don't know if that's more chemistry or if that's more Buxa just kind of uh, misjudging a play overall. But the Gustavo Bo play, I, I want to point out, we talked about Gustavo Bo's left foot yet, uh, last week uh, and how he was relying on his left foot. And it wasn't always accurate. Uh, that blast over the bar was with Gustavo Bo's left foot, his only left footed shot of the night. Um, so obviously not his, his weaker foot. Um, but yeah, two, two really big chances that really could have put this game away and, and made it a laugher. Uh, before the Tony De La Maya era, but um, hopefully this attack kind of gets on all cylinders um, and, and certainly hits its stride for the TFC game. Uh, before we move on to listener questions, I did want to ask about Kellen Rowe and Scott Caldwell. We talked about it a little bit last week, but um, I think that people were surprised, similar to the center back pairing, that we stuck with those two central midfielders. Um, Sean, why don't you talk about Kellen Rowe and Scott Caldwell uh, and how they did last night? And also, actually, why don't I add if you think they'll start against the TFC game uh, on Tuesday? Yeah, it was 
kind of an interesting game from both of them. I thought Scott Caldwell was pretty quiet in the first half and, and not as involved as we're used to seeing him. Um, whereas Kellen Rowe was a bit more involved. Um, I don't think either of them had a fantastic performance. Uh, you know, like like you expect from a, a Scott Caldwell, his passing numbers were pretty good. He had you know ninety two percent passing accuracy, um, but and I think he was more involved kind of in the second half before he came off actually. Um, and then Kellen Rowe eighty percent passing accuracy, not as good as what he had in the first game. Um, you know, again had a really nice long range shot that hit off the crossbar early on a, a good chance from him and a, a good effort from him that's what you like to see from him those are the positives in his game uh, but he also had one or two turnovers you know Seth mentioned that we you know he kept hearing come on Kellen coming from the sideline um at, at times in this game and one of those times was when he got actually did get back to receive a pass from the defenders and then immediately sent a you know poor pass that led to a turnover and led to a potential chance for for DC um I I think both of their spots are kind of at risk right now if I were to guess I'd say Kellen Rowe maybe goes to the bench for Zahibo in the next game um but at the same time it wouldn't surprise me if it was Caldwell either um I don't think either of those guys showed enough in this game um, to to hold down their starting spot going forward. So uh, I'm very interested to see what Bruce Arena does uh, with Kellen Rowe. There's a lot of positive things that he does, and I think he, you know he's a guy that the the pluses on the offensive side you know, are certainly more than the pluses on the offensive side from Scott Caldwell. Um, but the negatives and the mistakes on the defensive side are, are the opposite. They're they're more of a risk than Scott Caldwell. So when you're playing a, a team like Toronto, in which um, you know, maybe out of that central defensive midfield, you are more concerned with kind of limiting mistakes and uh, doing more defensively. It, it might make sense to have Scott Caldwell be the starter in that game next to Zahibo. Um, and, you know, in a game when you're going to have more control um, and, you know, Conroe maybe has shown enough where maybe you can put him next to either Caldwell or Zahibo and, and kind of play a more offensive game. But, um, you know, both of both of these players in this game, I think there were some positives you can take away from it and, and some negatives. But for for Kellen Rowe, it was kind of the same thing as against Montreal, where he did a lot of good, um, but had some key turnovers that really could have cost the Revs, and we're kind of lucky that they didn't. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, positive and negatives from from both players, um, and like you said, that the negatives for Rowe could have been punished and could have led to goals. And I totally remember the play that you're. T- talking about he he gets back he puts himself in a body position in which he receives the ball and then he actually has some time on the ball and then just it's a turnover um really when it's not necessarily something that has to happen in that moment it wasn't a lot of pressure on him he should be able to pick out a pass in that moment um Caldwell I think it's interesting for him because uh in, in row two but with Caldwell you saw that when Bruce Arena came in, you didn't see a lot of Caldwell. He was not getting a lot of minutes. He was not getting a lot of playing time. And then he gets that start during the playoffs. Um, and then he gets to start in the season opener. He gets pulled at halftime. So we're, we're kind of thinking, okay, Bruce Arena doesn't really trust Caldwell that much. And then he gets two starts in the MLS's back tournament. Uh, and I think there are some reasons why he's you know, in there as far as keeping the ball, keeping the tempo. And there's a couple times this tournament that we've seen him play really good um, longer balls. Uh, to try to unlock the the defense. And I think that's what the, this, these guys are missing, that they don't have that ability to hit the cross-field ball, which Zihibo can do sometimes. Uh, he's not totally accurate with it all the time, but he definitely attempts it more than than Rowe and uh, Caldwell in my mind. But I think that's what Matt Polster's brought in to do, that he's someone that's going to try to keep the tempo, which Scott Caldwell could do really well, but he can also try to hit that cross-field ball to maybe someone like Brandon By or maybe someone like uh, Boonder that's, that's trying to run into the space um, and try to hit those, those early crosses in. Uh, so, so for both of those guys, um, I think that their, their spot is in jeopardy. I would imagine that we're going to see Zahibo. I mean, it's, it's interesting that he's off the injury report at this point. We're told that it was a minor knock, but he doesn't come in at all. I think that 
honestly, he's probably one of the guys I would have liked to see come into the game, uh, whether it was before uh, DC's goal or after DC's goal, just to kind of change things up a little bit because I really didn't think the midfield was linking up really well with the attack. Like, they would get on the ball, but they weren't necessarily, you know, being that that presence to then move the ball forward. It was more that they would, you know, get the ball forward and then um, Kellen Rowe would go in and join the attack. Or it would more that uh, you'd have Scott Caldwell move the ball along the back line, but not necessarily progress it that well to the attacking end. And I think that, that someone to be there to be that presence would have helped keep possession a little bit more and, and saw the game out in a different way. So um, I imagine that Zahibo should be ready to go, and maybe that's just a part of the game plan, that we want to make sure that you know he, he doesn't have to have this quick turnaround at all, that we want to be as close to 90-minute fit and fresh. Uh, for the final game against uh, Toronto FC. Who he partners with is kind of interesting in my mind. Um, Caldwell would be kind of a defensive uh, approach. Um, but obviously, Zahibo has uh, chemistry with Diego Fagundes in the middle. Uh, so maybe we go back to that partnership that we saw in the beginning of the year. Uh, I didn't really necessarily think Fagundes looked that great coming on, per se. Uh, but maybe moving him into the middle as, as that guy that tries to find those through balls and try to find those seams. Um, is something you try to do, or maybe, uh, maybe you do the, you know, tell Rowe to push a little bit higher up because we did see that that great stinging shot, and there was another really great chance by uh, Carlos Heel who plays that ball, and Rowe starts to run into that space, uh, and it's just, I think that like he just gassed with the Orlando conditions that he's not able to get to the end of it. Uh, so positive and, and negatives from both players, definitely in my mind, it, you know, especially because of the quick turnaround, but even without the quick turnaround. I question whether or not those guys would be the automatic starters going forward. Uh, and I think that Zahibo makes a good case to at least take one of their positions. Yeah, and before we move on to listener questions, I want to just kind of quickly read off stats. Uh, Kellen Rowe yesterday, 37 for 46 passing. That's 80%. He was 9 for 11 in the attacking third. He had two chances created, five ball recoveries, was dispossessed, dispossessed twice, one's tackle, one interception, uh, and, and obviously that long shot off of the crossbar. And he also had a really nice run uh, into the box. Carly's heel kind of let him in, um, and it was just a little bit too far in front of him. So um, Kellen Rowe, I think another encouraging week from him. Uh, Scott Caldwell, really quiet in this game, as you guys mentioned. 34 for 37 passing. Uh, most of it, though, was in the middle third of the field. He was only three for four in the attacking third, um, and it was all short passes, so it's worth noting there. Um, he did have six ball recoveries, not dispossessed at all. Three tackles, two interceptions, uh, one foul committed, one foul suffered. So um, Scott Caldwell, a bit of a, a quiet night, but overall, I, I think he gets passing grades. Um, it does lead to the question of Wilfred Zahibo if we will see him next game. We did get a question from Revolution Report. Uh, where is Wilfred Zahibo? I am assuming it is a um, injury-related, you know, they want to kind of keep him as a precautionary measure, and, and the two guys from last week did so well, it kind of carried over into the next week. Um, Sean, do you, do you think the Zahibo being held out of the lineup, do you think it might have been strategic? Do you think it's injury-related? Um, and, and give me a quick prediction, yes or no, if we see him next week against TFC. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought he would at least be available in a substitute role in this game. Um, so, you know, I was a little bit surprised that we didn't see him come off the bench when the revolution were leading. But again, I think that goes back to, to Bruce Arena's strategy of kind of sticking with what's working, even when, you know, he has those guys on the bench, which, you know, we, we, we've already kind of dug into and questioned. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure he's probably wasn't necessarily 90 minutes fit since he was kind of coming off an injury in that first game um, and, you know, didn't play on that one. But, you know, I, I fully expect him to be in the lineup next week unless there's more of a serious injury or more of a recovery time than than we're aware of um you know i i can't imagine any other reason why he wasn't playing in this game 
um, other than, you know, Bruce Arena kind of wanted to stick with those guys. So unless there's something we don't know, I think that Wilfred Zahibo is going to you know, certainly see minutes in the final game of the, the group stages. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, like I said, it's just a matter of who he partners with. Uh, Diego, someone I partnered with earlier this season. Scott Caldwell will be that safer type of option. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, Roe that can play there as well. And a lot of it could depend on Carlos Heel. If Carlos Heel plays, um, because so much relies on him playing that that outside mid position, although he comes a lot in, into the center quite a bit during this MLS's back tournament, more than I thought we saw last year. Um, so if he's not available, who do you play there? Maybe you move Diego Fagundes out to the right wing like we saw during this past game, or maybe you switch up the tactics a little bit like we saw at the beginning of um, this season where it's actually Pania and Bunbury playing those wide areas, and they're playing it a little bit differently. It's not as much as that right wing coming in and then using basically Brandon Bay as the right um, uh, midfielder. It's a little bit more of a, a direct straighter uh, options coming from those players on the, the outside uh, midfield spots. Uh, I, I think there's a lot to, to think about because of the short turnaround, because I, I imagine you're going to see a decent amount of turnover in order to keep those guys fresh. Because uh, like you mentioned, Greg, uh, this is probably a team that is going to advance no matter what to the next round of the tournament to the knockout stage. Yeah, it would take a, I don't want to bring up Trinidad and Tobago, but it would take a Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago uh, level of series of events uh, to kind of all go against the revolution for them to not make the next series uh, or the next um, uh, to, to advance out of the group stage. So we, we should see some rotation, especially with the short turnaround, uh, but we'll, we'll find out. I do expect to see Wilfred Zahibo. I, I agree with both you guys. I think Wilfred Zahibo uh, is much needed for the TFC game. Uh, we While we're in the central midfield, we did get a question too from OSZ19 from Discord. What is Bruce Arena's fascination with Scott Caldwell? I don't see what Bruce sees in him being a, constant starting central midfielder would rather have Isaac and can get minutes than Scotty. Um, Seth, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, what does Bruce see in Scotty and why is he playing him? I mean, I don't know if Bruce really uh, is a, an automatic fan of Scott Caldwell. Like I said, when he first came in, Scott Caldwell wasn't getting a lot of time. Uh, and it's only until this MLS back tournament that he's really getting consistent minutes. I um, mean, going beyond, I mean, in the opener to be pulled after 45 minutes is, is, uh, we saw that a lot during the Brad Friedel era, but we haven't really seen that during the Bruce Arena era. So that was kind of a sign that he doesn't see enough out of Scott Caldwell. Uh, but I think that he's building some um, confidence in that Bruce Arena is seeing that, and Bruce Arena is seeing that Scott Caldwell is a tempo guy. Scott Caldwell is a hard worker uh, on the defensive end of the, the field. Uh, and I think that one thing that Scott Caldwell is showing a little bit more is that ability to to try to find like a longer ball over the top to create an opportunity that way. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily Bruce Arena is is a wouldn't necessarily say that Bruce Arena is a uh, automatic fan, a huge fan of Scott Caldwell. I think that he likes him as a player and that he's built more trust in Scott Caldwell. Uh, but I think that uh, that he's probably one of the best options because there isn't a lot of uh, options there to play the defensive midfield role. And I think that's why Matt Polster comes in. So with Zahibo out, that pretty much guarantees that you have to play Scott Caldwell as a defensive midfielder. Because uh, Ankin, we haven't really seen a lot of him. He looks sharp in the substitute appearances that he made before. But I'm not sure if he's ready for that big of a role. Um, and you probably want someone to be at least a little bit more defense-minded, especially if you're going to play a, a Roe or a Diego, who are definitely more attack-minded players. 
Yeah, you, you make some great points there. And, you know, I don't think there's a fascination with Scott Caldwell from Bruce Arena for those exact reasons that uh, that Seth stated. You kind of look at, at his career and, you know, he was a much more of an automatic starter or a regular starter under Jay Heaps. Than, and he was much more of a regular starter than, you know, with Brad Friedel. And then, you know, Bruce Arena took over and he really struggled for minutes under Bruce Arena for a long time. I think uh, since Bruce Arena took over, the most minutes he had were, were 12 as a late game substitute up until August 17th when he got his first start. And even then he was pulled until halftime. And then he went another three games with no minutes, then had a late sub appearance. And then finally on September 25th, you know, went 90 minutes. His only, you know, the only game where he played more than a half under Bruce Arena last season and then kind of bizarrely started in the, the playoffs, which nobody really expected. Um, and then again, this season, as, as Seth meant, he got pulled at, pulled at first at, you know, in the first half, um, at, at halftime against Montreal in the first game of the season. And then, you know, finally this MLS's back tournament is when he's started to get regular minutes in consecutive games, uh, for Bruce Arena. So I don't think there's a fascination there. I think it's, you know, again, kind of a, a, a thought that Scott Caldwell is a, a pretty consistent, reliable guy that, um, while he may not have so much upside on the offensive end, and while he may not be a guy that's going to have a massive influence on a game, he's a guy that's not going to cost you the game with his mistakes. Um, you know, minus some some notable ones with when Brad Friedel was the coach, but I think that's kind of a an anomaly for him. Um, but he's just a very safe player. We mentioned his passing stats and how he's you know at or above ninety percent almost every game. Um, and, you know, you don't really see those turnovers from him on a regular basis that we've been seeing from Kellen Rowe. Um, so, you know, Ken, when you get to a situation like this and, you know, guys aren't 100% match fit, guys aren't 100% ready for competitive action, um, I think Scott Caldwell is just kind of that consistent, steady guy. Um, and Bruce Arena's hand was forced a bit with, with Wilfred Zahibo because, you know, with him being hurt in the first game, I don't think there's any way you go into a game starting uh, Diego Fagundes and Kellen Rowe as your central midfielders. That's just kind of kind of a crazy proposition to me. Um so I think that the hand was kind of forced by Zahibo, and I think that you know Bruce Arena, like Seth has said, kind of recognizes the upside to Scott Caldwell, and that he's a guy that's not going to make many mistakes. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't think there's any, I, I don't think that Bruce Arena thinks Scott Caldwell is this, you know, um, amazing number six that's going to kind of carry the Revolution to a championship. I think he just recognizes him as a good complementary player that, um, you know, in a situation like this, isn't going to cost you the game. Yeah, and Scott Caldwell too. I mean, is a good complementary player is a, a good way to put. Um, Scott Caldwell's role, and he's been more or less forced into this role with Luis Caicedo's injury that's put him out for the show, uh, for the season, um, and, and then Wilfred Zahibo's kind of short-term injury. Um, Caldwell is kind of your only option, your defensive-minded uh, option in the midfield, because I think with Diego Fagundes um, and Kellen Rowe, you're a little bit exposed defensively there. Um, so I, I think Caldwell is making these starts recently kind of more out of need, uh, and it's kind of good to have him. Um, one person that we haven't mentioned is Matt Polster. Uh, it seems like Bruce is coming in uh, to bring in Matt Polster to kind of take over the Scott Caldwell role uh, for depth in the central midfield. So, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think he has any fascination. I think Bruce is just playing him out of need uh, in the short term. Uh, and I think Scott Caldwell is doing a, a fairly decent job of it overall. So, um, yeah, moving on. Uh, one question we did get early. It was about the subs, which we kind of touched on earlier but worth reiterating um why does jay hondo on twitter asks us why doesn't arena take advantage of the five sub rule by making more subs earlier in the game uh, it's a bit interesting too because two weeks uh, before the mls is back tournament bruce arena kind of gave the endorsement to uh, making the five sub rule more permanent or seeing it more in the future uh, long term uh, and he said he's made another comment too about how you need five subs in the orlando heat so we're really only seeing two or three subs kind of throughout the, the second half. And it's really based on a need basis. We don't, as we touched on it earlier, um, Sean, why is Bruce arena doing that? 
Yeah, I think it's just a comfort thing for Bruce Arena. And it goes back to the the point that I've made before, that Bruce Arena is a guy that likes to rely on his veterans. Um, and, you know, particularly in a, in a short tournament like this, um, there's not a lot of room for error. You can't afford to lose a couple games because if you do, you're, you're going home. And so I, I do think it's a comfort level thing. And, you know, maybe if the preseason was a couple months longer or if the, you know, it was actually July and the Revs had played a lot of games. If it was actually a standard July and the Revs had played a lot of you know, games before this and gotten guys chance to get some minutes, um, there'd be more comfort there. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't think there's enough trust from Bruce Arena and guys like Tejon Buchanan and guys like Justin Renix to necessarily put them out there and take out a Christian Pania. And I think that was kind of reflected in his postgame comments. Um, you know, I disagree with that strategy, but I, I think that's where, where Bruce Arena is coming from is that, you know, again, this is a short tournament, not a lot of room for error. And he hasn't necessarily seen enough from these young guys yet to trust them in those situations for more than a few minutes in a close game. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that Sean said there. Thanks, Seth. Uh, I'll give you the next question, Seth. Are there any players you want to see more playing time out of? Uh, are there any academy? Well, the second part of this question is, are there any academy products you want to see on Revs 2, Revs 2 having their season coming up, uh, or on the first team? But uh, it'll be a two-part question here of, um, are there any players you want to see playing more in this tournament? Uh, and then secondly, what academy players are you excited to see in the future? Yeah, uh, we mentioned it a few times now. I think that Jones and Buchanan are the two that I really is interested in because um, this tournament is is built for young, eager players uh, to use it as a showcase. Um, and those guys are creative. Those guys are have the speed for days. And I think that you know in the first game, part of the reason why uh, Roe and Caldwell did so well is because they brought so much energy and where. Um, Montreal was not bringing the energy. They Them pressing and them getting a little bit forward and getting in the face of them uh, higher up the field created a lot of difficulty and created a lot of uh, op- difficulty for Montreal and a lot of opportunity for the Revs. So to put guys like Buchanan and Jones out there to tell them to go at people and, and create chances and to press people, I bet they'd be eager to do something like that. I bet they're chomping at the bit to have an opportunity. Um, so those two, two that I'd really like to see. And I think Rivera is another guy that I'd like to see. Uh, he looked really good during the preseason. He was linking up with guys. He was finding the back of the net. Um, and, again, that's a guy that Arena mentions and talks about um, as someone that can make a difference in this tournament. So this last game of the, the, the group stage is interesting because in some ways the Revs have uh, sealed their fate. Obviously, they wish they could have six points right now as opposed to four points. Um, it's a shorter turnaround. So what do you do? Like, What lineup changes do you make? Do you go full-scale changes? Do you just move some guys around? Um, I think at the very least, you definitely go to your bench earlier to get some guys on the field. Uh, Greg, you mentioned uh, Trinidad and Tobago, so I- I'm guessing that uh, you think that Bruce will make no changes and they'll lose and uh, they will not advance to the tournament. Is that what you believe? And I did not say that. I did not say that. I'm just saying we've seen we've seen, you know, an unfortunate series of events, you know, occur in this sort of similar situation with Bruce Arena teams. But overall, as I said, for my key takeaway, I'm not panicked at all. I expect to see some rotation uh, and I I expect the revs to uh, have a decent enough result to move on from the group stage. That's all I'm saying. if If you're asking me about rotation, I do expect to see some changes. Fair. The second part of the question uh, talked about Revs 2. I'll be honest, I haven't really followed along much with Revs 2. Um, I do think that it's exciting that some of the guys that uh, Richie Williams coached uh, in the USL team has come over because obviously he knows those guys pretty well. 
Uh, Woodruff also being another name that uh, has come up quite a bit as, as someone that has some promise. Um, but I'm not really sure what to expect uh, regarding some of the academy players over there uh, or uh, the team as a whole. Yeah, I'm excited to see Revs 2 actually take the field. And I'd be happier to answer this question after I've watched them play a few times because, you know, I think, you know, some of the, the best talent on that team, um, you know, could have a chance to get some minutes for the Revolution in the future. But, um, you know, I don't know enough about a lot of these guys to make an assumption on, on who on Revs 2 is going to be exciting to watch or, you know, who from the academy is going to step up to Revs 2 to, to really make an impact. Um, you know, as to who I want to see in the tournament, I think my list is very similar to Seth. I've been railing for Dewan Jones from the beginning. Um, you know, Dewan Jones kind of by by you know nature of who the revolution have been lacking in the past has been forced to play a lot of left back. But from what we heard from him, he was getting some opportunities to train um, in more of a midfield role. And we know that was where he played in college. And uh, to me, it would be really nice to see him get an opportunity to play kind of that more attacking role in one of these games. Again, if you have a guy like Dewan Jones, who's, probably one of the fastest guys in MLS, if not, you know, right, right at the top of that list. And then Tejan Buchanan, who's, you know, pretty close behind him in speed. Um, I would, I would think if you brought those guys on around the 75th minute to run at tired legs, that that'd be an absolute nightmare um, for the fullbacks of an opponent of an opposing team. And with five subs, there's no reason you can't do that. So those are two guys I'd really like to see. Um, I think Damian Marrero was mentioned earlier on in the podcast. I forget by who, and you know, he's a guy that we saw a lot from in preseason. Um, maybe he's not the guy that you put in a close game, but maybe if the revolution have a two goal lead, late or down two goals late you know he's a guy that you can get some minutes to and and see what he has to offer um you know the young guys are the guys that i would really like to see get chances especially in this third group stage uh game and and especially because as greg said um it would take a a very unfortunate series of events for the revolution not to advance even if they did lose this game um so you know those the young guys and the, the guys that we just mentioned are kind of the ones that i would really like to see get more minutes and have an opportunity to shine especially those you know kind of young wingers that um can have an impact late in the game with their pace and their their youth it'll be really interesting to see because i i do agree that we're going to see roster rotation so one guy that's probably on that list is alexander bootner uh he's a guy who hasn't played a lot of soccer up until these last couple games he's looked really good uh, I know his passing was down this past game, but I think that defensively he was sharp. And I think he steps to the ball really well. And I've seen that in the, the last two games, that he can read things and try to step in and, and, and create an interception and then try to get forward from there. Um, but, you know, having played these two games, I imagine he's due for a rest. So does Dewan Jones play there or Sesinovic? Uh, Sefcinovic didn't necessarily look great during the preseason, uh, but he is a veteran guy. And I know that he was dealing with a little bit of a fitness knock issue during preseason at one point. Um, and then Dewan Jones is very, very speedy, very good, uh, but doesn't necessarily know the position as well as the other two experienced guys. So that might be a little bit of a tell as far as, you know, is he kind of making this transition full time to being a left back? And that's going to be his spot going forward. Um, or is he just going to be a utility guy that can be plugged in anywhere given any given situation he's also an option at right back as well i mean brandon buys played a lot of minutes so maybe you see dewan jones play right back session they play left back uh it depends on again how much russell rotation uh bruce arena feels comfortable with outside of seeing some rotation in the lineup and seeing some of our young uh, promising athletes uh randy lh wants us to know wants to know why should revs fans be optimistic about the toronto game seth I think that, that Toronto's defense isn't that good. Um, and and uh, that's going to create opportunities for them to go out there and attack and, and to, 
to hopefully get a couple uh, balls in the back of the net. I mean, that, that game against Montreal was pretty wild. I don't know if you guys watched that one. It was back and forth, and um, Montreal definitely came out and had a better game. They definitely came out to play, so it's not the same Montreal that the Reds played. But I think that if they go out there and put pressure on the back line, they can create opportunities. They can create turnovers. Um, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, going back to Adam Buxa, I think the one thing that he could do better is press. Uh, I don't think he necessarily presses the ball as well as Teal Bunbury. Um, and that's kind of a high, high bar to set. You know, Teal Bunbury's thing is about being energetic. He's going to press you. He's got never going to give up on the ball. Um, so you wonder if, if Adam Buxa continues to start or maybe this is a game for Teal Bunbury to go after um, the back line. Because even if it's not the starting back line for Toronto – you know, bringing on Saman is almost guaranteed that more goals are going to happen or more mistakes are going to happen. He has not looked good this tournament. And uh, Zabaleta, the, the guy who also pairs with him sometimes, has also not looked that good. So if you're looking for optimism, um, it has to do with that back line being vulnerable. Uh, the attack uh, is very, very good. Like, they're so dynamic. They, they're they so fluid. Um, but that's going to be really intimidating, uh, especially because Josie – hasn't played, I believe, at all this tournament, or has def- certainly hasn't started this tournament. He hasn't so, even been in the 18. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, the 23, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 23, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Which makes it even more crazy. Um, but, you know, you imagine that hopefully they want to get him. I know that there were some issues because he was in Florida, and then when he went to back to Toronto, he had to quarantine. Uh, so, maybe Toronto is looking for him to get into the lineup now, and you know, so if he's in the lineup, that's dangerous. Uh, Akinella, which I mentioned earlier, is very, very good. Everyone should be hoping that he plays for the U.S. national team uh, going forward. I believe he played for the U-17, but he could play for Canada and, and maybe uh, somewhere else as well. Um, so the attack, even with some roster rotation, is probably going to be good for Toronto. But the defense is uh, something that, that you know, Gustavo Bo is probably excited about. Uh, but of course, the Revs would look very different if Carlos Hill is not playing. So lots of lots of question marks going into that last game. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm interested to see. I, as far as optimism, um, I think you know Seth laid out some some good points. But as, as far as what I'm looking for in this game, uh, one thing that I think is going to be kind of fun to watch is is seeing Adam Buxa go up against Omar Gonzalez. I imagine the two of them will be matched up a lot. Um, you know, Buxa six foot three, Omar Gonzalez six foot five. Uh, Gonzalez, a U.S. national team veteran, um, it'll be a good test for him. So, you know, if, if Adam Buxa can win aerial duels against uh, Omar Gonzalez and kind of, you know, find Gustavo Bo, um, that's going to be a fun thing to watch for sure. So I'm I'm curious um, to see how that plays out. And then, uh, you know, if Carles Heel is out of this game, um, they'll be even more dependent on that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we don't know what lineup changes Toronto is going to make either. Both of these teams are probably, you know, pretty good are in pretty good position to be advancing to the next round. So, you know, we might see a lot of changes from from Toronto. We might see a lot of changes from the Revolution. Um, I, I don't really know what to expect from this game, but if we see, you know, similar lineups, uh, you know, one matchup that I'm really looking forward to is Buxa versus Gonzalez. Yeah, and, and one other thing too that that's interesting, that's kind of a, a bit of a side narrative, is that. You know, if you're a one seed, you play one of the three seeds. And if you're a two or, or three seed, you play either a, a one or a two seed. If you look at the groups, I mean, right now, Orlando City is a one seed. San Jose is a one seed. You know, and then you also have some three seeds that are like Sporting Kansas City, Seattle. Um, you know, LAFC is a three seed now. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how both of these teams kind of approach the game because 
being a one seed not, is not necessarily a good thing. It might still lead to a bad matchup. Um, I still would want the Revs to come out and win the game and win the group. Uh, but that that it might be you you might not be getting the Toronto A team. Uh, we might not be getting the, the Revs A team. So um, in terms of why I would be optimistic, I, I would just say this is more of a low stress game um, that you really don't have to be too too stressed out about because if the Revs end up as the two seed in the group, which unless DC beats Montreal, which is very possible they, they will be the two seed they're guaranteed at least the two seed um it, it it's just not a high stress uh game for me so um real quick we got a couple of other questions talking about gustavo bow camboozle newton uh, on discord asks us uh about gustavo bow's um decision making he says why is gustavo bow unable to make the correct decision in regards to making the correct pass run touch shot um certainly gustavo bow had seven shots yesterday two of them on target uh and and there is some questions too about once Carly's heel is off the field, Gustavo Bo, everything kind of runs through him, uh, and he obviously cannot fill in Carly's heel's shoes. Um, is there an issue with Gustavo Bo's playmaking? Uh, Sean, I'll start with you. I honestly don't know if it's decision making so much as it is about execution, and I think it's you know a sharpness issue. Um, and I'm kind of willing to give him a pass for the the first two games of this tournament, and that they haven't you know had an opportunity to be training and playing competitive games for that long. But but to me. The execution and the sharpness on whether it's the final pass or the the final shot has been lacking, and it's and it's more about that uh, than necessarily the decision making. Yeah, he he's such an interesting character for me because he's so bold, and you want him to do that, uh, but sometimes he does too much on the ball. Uh, there was times when he would dribble where maybe he should have like laid the ball off and they like then opened yep. up and tried to to play a different way. Uh, there was times where he tried these these flicks that didn't quite come off, but at the same time. You you kind of know that's the type of player that he is. That he's going to be bold. That he's going to try things. And I made uh, a comparison a little bit that he reminded me a little bit of Clint Dempsey because he's just someone that goes out there and plays uh, soccer. And it reminds me of uh, you know Paul Mariner saying that he's really enjoying his football. That he just goes out there and he runs around and pops up in spaces. And you, it's, I gotta imagine he's a nightmare to play against because you don't know where he's going to go all the time or what he's going to do. Um, yeah, I don't think necessarily he had a great game last night, especially as it went on. Um, you know, he missed that golden opportunity from Adam Buxa, but he also looked tired towards the end. Um, him and Heal didn't get back as much as we saw in the first game. Uh, they weren't as active, I thought, as we saw in the first game. Uh, but he's still a really good player. Uh, he's still someone that in any given moment he's going to pop up in and create something. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that they're – there are things to look at and, and kind of want and hope to get a little bit more out of uh, Bo. And I don't think I went through his stats earlier, but seven shots, two on target, 31 for 39 passing. It's 80%. He was 15 for 22 in the attacking third. He had four chances created, although I think some were from corner kicks. Uh, four ball recoveries, dispossessed three times, three tackles, one interception. He also had a really nice move um, on the, the right wing in the 41st minute where he just completely turned a defender the wrong way and it led to an open cross. Uh, he sent it low for Buxa and the, the cross was deflected, uh, but it was still, he, he did have some really nice moments yesterday. It just didn't lead to any goals. And I think when you have a guy taking seven shots and there, it doesn't lead to goals. Um, I, I think it looks a lot worse than it is, but um, you know, you want Kasava Bo taking those long range shots and, and lighting off those missiles because even though it didn't lead to anything yes, uh, in, in yesterday's game, you know, it got us three points against Montreal. Um, one more question here from at Dendun29 on Twitter. I feel the Revs should be looking for a goal-scoring poacher off the bench, someone who can give you 15 to 20 minutes late in the game, two or three chances created. Teal is the pacer and pressure forward with the lead, but we need a goal-scoring forward off the bench. Who would you sign? 
Um, and I, I've got to just kind of throw out a name. Justin Rennix is there. I'm not sure why we're not using Justin Rennix as much as we are, but he's a highly touted prospect. Uh, I think a lot of people had high hopes for him. He was in the U20 World Cup last year. I don't see why he's not getting more of a shot as this 15 to 20 minute guy late in the game uh, that can can create a chance for you. Um, Seth, I'll, I'll go to you. Uh, anyone come to mind for, for filling this role? Yeah, I think you're right that Justin Rennex is the guy that should be doing it, um, especially because you want some of your homegrowns uh, to develop into first-team players. So if you're constantly going out and signing people, uh, you're not going to have that pathway from the academy to the first team. And uh, what you're looking for right now is a guy off the bench that can grab some goals. So you're not asking for full games from Justin Rennex. You're asking for him to go out there and play 15, 20 minutes and try to grab a goal, which is something that we saw him do in the Olympics and something that he almost did um, at the beginning of this season. Um, Teal Bunbury probably still is your first choice to go to because uh, he has that proven history because he's played in this league for so long. Um, and, and he probably is chopping at the bit to, to do, you know, press people, to go after people, to try to create that opportunity out of nothing. Um, if you're looking to sign someone that can score goals late in games, Alan Gordon, uh, maybe Stephen Lenhart. I mean, those guys uh, can probably <laughs> hobble around the field and head, head the ball in. Uh, once or twice for you. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if you necessarily go out and spend money. I mean, you, you just got Buxa, who's a big signing to come in. Uh, I'm not sure how many guys you can bring in that are going to be willing to to do that and off the bench. Um, again, maybe you, uh, those guys, obviously I mentioned as MOS veterans are, are obviously jokes, but maybe you can find a guy who's still um, hanging around that wants to play, but is going to come off the bench. I mean, you look at Iguain, he's a, He's 35 years old uh, for D.C. United, and he's also a, a coach, but he's also someone that wants to still play soccer and go out there. So uh, he, he willingly signs with D.C. United, um, knowing that he's probably going to be a bench option. But, of course, Benny, uh, Ben Olsen has a issue now that probably Iguain maybe could be a starter. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe you, you look for someone like that uh, that can fill in that role. Yeah, I, I feel like any time a question like this comes up, somebody throws out the name Patrick Mullins from you know six years ago. You know, forgetting the fact that he's good for maybe one goal a season in, the, in recent years. Um, but you know, when when I hear a question like this, I, I'm kind of with Seth. It's kind of hard to go out there and find a, a goal scorer that's willing to sit on your bench, um, especially kind of at this point of the season too. Um, I, I would also like to see the Revolution find a way to develop talent from their academy to get Justin Rennix those minutes. You know, I do think that uh, Teal Bunbury is a, a serviceable backup striker, even if you're looking for a goal scorer and not more of the the Africa guy that it can be. I think he, you know, he works in that role too. Um, realistically, I just think that's a hard role to fill. Um, goal scorers are not easy to find and goal scorers that are going to be your backup are even harder to find. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for like a Patrick Mullins level player, all right, fine. But I'm not sure that's something that really impacts the Revs fortunes going forward. I just realized this isn't the same guy that was giving you a hard time last year, Sean, about uh, a few years ago when you said you didn't want Quincy Ameriqua. I think this is a different person, correct? <laughs> I, I, th- I think so. <laughs> okay. I, I, I just realized this isn't a troll question about Quincy Ameriqua again, is it? But, um... <laughs> Quincy is available. He, he is certainly available. And, you know, if we're talking about goal scores, too, I think we got to mention Hauche. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, he <laughs> must have – he must be available, I assume. So, And I'm always on the bring back Brian Wright uh, bandwagon. I, I, he never got his fair shot. So, You saw that he scored against Tim Howard in the USL, right? Oh, I sure did. I sure did. He's lighting it up in Birmingham. So 
I'm a, I'm a big Brian Wright guy. He's lighting it up in USL. I know that doesn't always translate to MLS, as we know from Sean Acoli, but um, yeah, he's he's doing well in Birmingham. I'm looking forward to watching more games on ESPN Plus. Go uh, go anywhere up south. <laughs> Before we go though, uh, we we on the topic of Teal Bunbury, we did have one more news item. Teal Bunbury did sign a contract extension with the Revolution. He was set to be a free agent at the end of the season. Uh, Sean, quick, uh, we we don't know contract terms as of right now, so it's hard to kind of grade this move, um, whether or not it's good or bad. But um, any any quick thoughts on this, Sean, about Teal Bunbury staying long term? Yeah, I mean, with without knowing the salary, it's it's hard to to make too many judgments on it. I I would assume that you know at at most he got kind of a a minimal salary increase. Um, you know, as we were discussing, he's been a good you know he's a good depth piece behind Adam Buxa. He's a good change of pace guy that you know plays very differently. Um, you know, the salary from last year for him was two hundred and seventy thousand. Uh, which which seems high, but at the same time, for kind of a you know backup striker, a backup winger, um, a rotation guy, you know a guy who can score goals and can get hot and streaky, it's it's not unreasonable. So assuming it stayed around that level, I think it makes sense. But um, you know at the same time, if you're one of those people, you know like Seth was saying, that wants to see more academy guys get minutes and kind of less reliance on all you know aging veterans um maybe you're less happy about this but you know i don't think it would make sense to let teal bunbury walk away I, I, assuming his contract was up at the end of the season i don't think it would make sense to kind of let him walk away for nothing yeah i'm happy with the, the signing i think the signing is fine uh, i think that he's a, a depth piece at this point uh he can play up top he can play either as a left mid or a right mid um i think that he's also a locker room guy uh he's very very well liked he's uh by the fans and the players um, one thing I thought was interesting is I talked to a source who said that Bruce Arena is trying to lock in some of the core so that some of those guys are going to be around for longer. Uh, we saw that uh, with with Andrew Farrell being signed. We saw that with Matt Turner being signed. We see that now with Teal Bunbury being signed. And I think that that's an important thing to consider that you want to you know find some of those pieces, um, be able to relay like here here's where you fall in the pecking order right now. Um, but we want you to stay around for these reasons because it creates a, uh, a culture um, where you know you feel respected, you feel like you are, are part of a team, um, and you feel like you you want to give everything you have to the team because they've they've um, given you something, they've, they've given you some trust, and they they've communicated that to you. Yep, and I think it the only negative really I can see is it impacts kind of the youth, as, as Sean kind of mentioned. I mean, this, this obviously has a downward negative effect on guys like Justin Renex. Um, who you, you would think would be kind of that backup, you know, 15 to 20 minute striker, backup striker. Um, you know, it probably impacts Tayon Buchanan. Um, you know, are we going to see Dewan Jones on the wing? Probably not. So, I, I mean, I think it kind of keeps the backlog exi- existing. But is Teal Bunbury worth his salary? Yeah, he is. He is. Uh, it, it, and he, he's not taking up an uh, international spot. He, he fills a role. He fills multiple roles for this team. Um, so overall, I, I think this is a this fits the Bruce Arena philosophy of signing reliable veterans who can do a job that you need them to do. And um, again, we don't know salary numbers, but assuming there's no massive, you know, increased spike um, in, in his pay, uh, I think it's probably a good move overall for the Revs. So, uh, guys, any final thoughts before we depart here today? No, I mean, I think that uh, that was an interesting game to watch and to take in. Obviously, a frustrating uh, game from the Revolution perspective. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this next one goes. And then how the rest of the season goes, because uh, Bruce Arena came in last year and he did it really well. I mean, he showed that there's a lot uh, left in the tank, that he has all these ideas, that he can build the culture. Um, and this season hasn't gone quite as well for him. 
that said, there's so many things that are, are weird about this year. I mean, missing Carlos Heel the first two games of the season um, changes this team. There's no question about it. Uh, so you can't really judge Bruce Arena uh, based on that. And then down in Orlando, uh, these games are weird because of the conditions, because of um, you know the quarantine factor, uh, the bubble factor. Um, but, I mean, to only have one win on the season so far uh, isn't necessarily uh, great. Uh, for the revolution. So, uh, you know, as we continue to get more games and uh, as we continue to see more, we'll be able to really understand what this revolution team is all about. Yeah, look, the the first two games of this tournament, you had two teams that I think were kind of willing to take more of a defensive approach against the revolution for for different reasons. And, you know, we're kind of more on the back foot. Um, I don't think no matter what lineup we get against Toronto is going to be that way. Uh, this game, I think, is going to be really exciting. It's weird to say, you know, to look at the revolution and say, you know, they've given up one goal in two games. Um, and then look at Toronto who's given up five goals in two games and kind of put them on the, in the same boat as far as defensive question marks. But I think the reality is they do both have a lot of defensive question marks. Uh, and there's the potential that this game could be a lot more open than the first two games and, and have a lot a lot more goals. So um, I'm very excited to see that game and, and, you know, think that there's, you know, potential that instead of a, you know, one or two goal game, we could see a three, four or five goal game this time and, uh, you know, have a lot more action around the goal mouth. And quickly, guys, where can we find you guys on Twitter and social media? You can find me at SethMan31 and I uh, write for the Bent Musket. And you can find me at Sean L. Donahue. And Seth, do you still have a pretty good article coming out soon? You teased it the last time you were on and I haven't seen anything yet. Yeah, still working on it, still, uh, you know, talking to people and, and putting together the final touches. So, uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we will come out uh, next week or when it's ready or when I get my act together. Uh, but the, the first draft is done. People have looked at it. Uh, I'm not going to show it to you, Greg, because I know that you'll show everyone else. Ah, damn. Well, can't trust that guy. It was worth a shot. It was worth a shot. But make sure you follow Seth and Sean. And also make sure you follow the Bat Musket at the Bat Musket on Twitter. Um, and like their Facebook page, too. You can follow us at Revolution Recap and like our Revolution Recap Facebook page. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Revs play next Tuesday morning against Toronto FC. Uh, we will be back next week at some point. Not sure what day yet, but we'll be back at some point next week to talk about that game and whoever the Revs get lined up against in the uh, in the knockout rounds. Knock on wood. They should make it, as I've said 300 times. But until then, thank you, everyone, for listening, and go Revs. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.